Hello, everybody, and welcome to the March 19, 2021 edition of Peaceful Globalist Review. I'm your host, the Peaceful Globalist, Ephraim Josine. And ladies and gentlemen, do you know what today marks? It marks Joe Biden on his 58th day as President of the United States getting 100 million shots in the arms of average Americans. This does not mean that 100 million Americans are fully vaccinated. As of right now, only 41 million Americans are fully vaccinated, according to the CDC, or just under 41 million. The actual number is about 40.98 million, but you guys know what I mean. About 41 million Americans have been fully vaccinated, okay? Meanwhile, another 18 million have gotten their first shot, and we currently have 100 million shots in the arm of average Americans, of every American. Okay, so immediately, this is big news, and I do mean big news. Wow, is it big news. Joe Biden said he was going to do this in 100 days. Okay, now when he said that, everyone was calling him crazy. Everyone thought, no, Joe Biden can't do that. Oh, no, he did it. Oh, boy, did he do it. 100 million, I know I keep, I know I keep going on about this, I seriously cannot get over that, 100 million shots in the arm, or <laughs> shots in the arms of Americans, just, oh my god, I, wow, and in only 58 days after taking office, we thought it was going to take 100 days, it didn't take 100 days, it took 58 days, it took just over half or 58% of what we of what Joe Biden thought it was going to. And this by the way goes back into my theory because I do believe Joe Biden knew it wasn't going to take 100 days. I do. What I believe he was telling us and I talked about this when I discussed his first televised address I yeah, it was last week. Um when he says a date, he is telling us if I fall into a coma for half the time between now and then it will be this date, assuming everything goes wrong also. Like, that's the absolute latest something is going to happen. So when he said 100 million shots in the arms of Americans in 100 days, he didn't mean 100 days, we got 100 shots if everything goes well. He meant if everything goes wrong, I will personally find random Americans who have not gotten the vaccine yet and give it to them myself until we reach 100 million on day 100. Because that's the kind of man Joe Biden is. And we can argue about if that's a good strategy for politicians. I think it's a wonderful strategy. Because it means that no matter what, no matter what, he is almost certainly going to, bra going to get to brag that he did it before everyone, including himself, said he could. That he's just been passing expectations over and over and over again. And say what you want about Joe Biden. He has been defying expectations. When he ran in 2020, there was a sizable chunk of his campaign, especially in the primaries. Everyone thought he was going to lose. Everyone thought he was going to lose. I thought he was going to lose. I did. I really did. I assumed he was going to lose. I said in my articles just before the election or just before Super Tuesday, that he'd need to win basically every single Super Tuesday state 
in order to have a fighting chance against Sanders and Bloomberg. And, of course, there were a large amount of Democrats who dropped out just before Super Tuesday. And Warren stayed in when she shouldn't have. And there were a few things that you could argue were fuckery. Although, with that said, I will still say, if you want to blame the, all those Democrats dropping out the day before Super Tuesday as the reason why Biden got the nomination, you have to explain why Michael Bloomberg... <laughs> was still in the race. If you take away his votes and it was just Bloomberg and Biden versus Sanders and Warren, Bloomberg and Biden would have won basically every state if you add their two numbers together. But no, there was a sizable amount of time where everyone thought Joe Biden was going to lose, but he's the little engine that could. What can I say? He's the little engine that could. We didn't think it was possible. He not only proved it was possible, he exceeded our expectations. And you know what? I'm happy to have that guy in the White House. I am. I am. I like Joe Biden. I'm happy he's in the White House. Not just because Trump's out of it, because he specifically has this skill. You know, he was never a Bernie Sanders guy where he's out there talking about how we're going to do big things, amazing things. <laughs> no, he just says, listen, listen, folks, we're going to do something rather small. And then you, he actually does it, and it's really big, and it's really cool. That, that's Joe Biden. That's the tone for his administration. And you know what? I'm going to go a little farther. If he can keep this momentum up, he has. The Democrats will have the midterms. They might actually expand in the midterms, which would be very rare. Last time that happened was 2002. And I think he could even be re-elected in a landslide. And by the way, I should know, a lot of people say Biden's going to be a one-term president. He's, oh, he's so old, he has dementia. No, no, Biden's two terms. Biden's going to do eight years, okay? And then he's going to live for another 20, and he's going to write a memoir. And the memoir is going to be a bestseller, and it's going to be a really good memoir, too. It's going to be a really funny memoir. Joe Biden strikes me as the kind of guy who would write a memoir with phrases like, Listen, Jack, I tried to offer them unity. I really did. But when they wouldn't take it, I had to bite down on them harder than I bit down on my ice cream cone. <laughs> That's who Joe Biden is. The point is, <laughs> the point is Joe Biden did something very good today, and I'm very happy it happened. That's my point. Anyway, in honor of this, it seems like the CDC has completely flip-flopped on its guidelines <laughs> regarding what's needed. This is from AP. CDC changes school guidelines allowing desks to be closer. Students can safely sit just three feet apart in the classroom as long as they wear masks, but should be kept their usual six feet apart from one another at sporting events, assemblies, lunch, or chorus practices? C chorus practices? That's a thing? What? <laughs> the Center for Disease Control and Prevention said Friday. Wait, oh, today's Friday. I almost, yeah, that's today. <laughs> um, so, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can do three feet apart if you're sitting and masked in a classroom, but if you're sitting in masked at a sporting event, you can't. If you're sitting in masked 
I, I guess you wouldn't really be wearing a mask while eating lunch. You could be eating, you could be wearing a mask while singing, though. That's possible. So why, why does it suddenly change exactly? If you're not releasing droplets at that time, which I assume would be the excuse, then why does it matter how far apart you're sitting? You know, if you're not releasing any droplets from spit or sweat or anything else, wouldn't you be able to stand literally shoulder to shoulder right next to each other? Uh, you guys might remember a while ago, in response to Jen Psaki saying that Joe Biden wants to open, it was, I think it was half of all schools at least one day a week by his 100th day as president. I talked about it on this podcast, but I wrote an article titled, There Is No COVID 9.5. And I checked, by the way, there's not. Uh, in which I essentially said COVID restrictions are something you can't compromise on because the end result is very clearly black and white, okay? Either you have COVID-19 or you don't. And I made fun of this push for that specific form of school reopening. The push for school reopening, by the way, I've continuously called it a dogma. And that's because that's what it is. The general fear is that if we don't reopen schools, well, what, what's going to happen? Are our kids going to burn in hell for all eternity? You'd believe that if you listen to the people advocating for it. But I pointed out that COVID-19 is either something you have or you don't. Okay? And there is no reason to reopen schools unless we can guarantee the students don't. And you can say, well, we're putting all these measures in place. We're only having students show up on a certain day, for example. Well, yeah, but it still means, unless it's literally only that one student and nobody else showing up, they can still get COVID. In fact, even if it is just that one student and no one else showing up, if it's a different student each day and the student accidentally gets COVID on a surface, well, COVID can live on a surface for up to 14 days. So immediately there are a variety of issues with these ideas but we've been seeing hybrid schedules constantly we've been seeing the school reopening push constantly and you'd think that if we did the hybrid model somehow the covid would be less dangerous no it isn't it's the exact same it's the exact same form of covid 19 it might have even mutated slightly who knows who knows but it's not going to become covid 9.5 it's not going to become anything else than the original virus, plus maybe an additional change after a very long period of time. I mean, will somebody just give me one, just one scientific argument for doing this? For this restriction, or lack of restriction specifically. Now, if you're sitting down in a classroom, all of a sudden you can go from six feet to three feet. What? That doesn't make any sense. Why? How does this work? The, the, nothing about this is in any way logical. Uh, there's this quote from the Associated Press article. Three feet gives school districts greater flexibility to have more students in for a prolonged period of time. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We didn't put these restrictions in place to increase student flexibility. We put them in place to stop COVID-19. The goal of the CDC disease control and prevention is to control and prevent disease okay changing the guidelines because schools think it would provide greater flexibility 
is, and I don't use this word often because it's actually kind of a stupid word, but it's politicizing it. That's what's going on. The point of the CDC is to specifically focus on disease control and disease prevention. Not to worry about what the schools are thinking. Uh, school issues are, well, they're primarily what state and local governments are for, but even if you want a federal agency, that's what the Department of Education is for. Okay? On a federal level, it's the Department of Education's problem. And even then, it's primarily the problem of state and local governments, or at least it should be more their problem than anyone else, but that's a different topic. Not the CDC's. It's not the CDC's problem how flexible schools are. And if Biden is really going to give in to this, to just allow the CDC to start worrying about what's good for schools, then why not? Why? Why? Why is it the CDC's concern? That's my question. Why is it the CDC's concern in any way if schools do well? If their guidelines conflict with what would be best for students, the Department of Education can say so. That's their job, not the CDC's job. It is in no way the CDC's responsibility to worry about schools. I know I keep saying this, but it's true. It's true. The CDC has no responsibility to worry about schools. And yet, and yet, here we are. Anyway, you know what? It's Friday. I want something quick and easy to kind of relax with. Let's do something we haven't done in a while. Let's make fun of Josh Hammer, the editor-in-chief of Newsweek. Now, we still make fun of Newsweek quite a bit, although not as much as I'd like to, truth be told. But we still do make fun of them. Although now, we're just making fun of Hammer specifically. So here's his column for this week. Democrats would be short-sighted to nuke the Senate filibuster. And I picked this because I've been meaning to talk about the filibuster for quite a while. And just the story hasn't come up that I want to give my thoughts out on it for. So I'm just going to use this as a jumping off point. Here's what Hammer wrote. You'll regret this, and you may regret this a lot sooner than you think. Then-Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell told then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid in 2013 on Senate Democrats invoking the nuclear option to prevent Senate Republicans from filibustering all lower court judicial nominations. And so it was. In 2017, facing fierce Democratic opposition on the nomination of then-Judge Neil Gorsuch to replace Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court, then-Majority Leader Mitch McConnell galvanized Republicans to extend Reid's precedent to Supreme Court nominees. I love that implication that McConnell wouldn't have done such a thing if... Uh, Reid hadn't done it beforehand, hadn't set a precedent. McConnell doesn't care about precedent. He doesn't. He only cares about power. That's the kind of person Mitch McConnell is. And in that regard, he's been very effective at consolidating power for himself, especially within the Republican Party. I mean, we're in a situation where no one really likes Mitch McConnell. Even most Republicans don't like Mitch McConnell. But nobody will say so, or at least nobody in the Republican Party will say so, because he has just that much power. That's what he's good at. He's good at consolidating power. And so, no, he would have done that no matter what, regardless of what the precedent was. It was the Repu We used to have filibusters in the House representatives. And it was Republicans who got rid of that. Did that happen because Harry Reid set a precedent over a century in the future? No, it happened because, at the end of the day, one side cares way more about power than the other side. 
Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett all ended up benefiting from by means of a razor-thin confirmation margins on the Senate floor that would not have been possible with a traditional filibuster rules in place. Fast forward, and by the way, what would you have preferred happen then, Josh? I mean, would you preferred we had three Supreme Court vacancies for four years? Because that is the only alternative to what you're saying. That's the thing, they love this argument. Well, that's the only reason Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett are on the court. Well, no, no, the reason why they're on the court is because we needed someone to fill those seats at the end of the day. Yeah, I'd rather have a Supreme Court that occasionally makes very bad decisions, but is still at the end of the day functional than an unfunctional one. Sorry, I would, I would. Call, call that whatever you want. So, yeah, okay. That's what happens sometimes. Whoops. All changes have risks. Fast forward to 2021 and Democrats are now flirting with making precisely the same mistake they made in 2013. Mistake from the man who continuously defended Kavanaugh and Barrett. Mistake my ass. <laughs> mistake my ass, Josh. I saw you. Defend Kavanaugh and Barrett. That's how I first found you. It was because you were defending Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> Mistake my ass. Specifically, in an ABC interview, he appeared to endorse reforming Senate procedures to return to the talking filibuster, made famous by the classic Jimmy Stewart film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, no, not really. What it used to be when I first got to the Senate back in the old days, you had to stand up and command the floor. You had to keep talking, Biden said. That's what it was supposed to be. To be sure, ending the Senate filibuster is hardly a fate accompli. Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have expressed reservations, and in a 50-50 deadlock Senate, Democrats cannot afford to lose a single vote. But if they end up yielding to the already escalating grassroots pressure to join their colleagues to end or reform the filibuster, I like how reform is in quotes, like it wouldn't be still allowing it, but just changing the rules slightly. To what they were, by the way, just before the 1970s. I should also note, this idea of filibusting a bill by simply not voting on it, that didn't really become a thing until the 70s. 1970s to be exact so we survived from what would it be 1787 until the 1970s without our modern filibuster <laughs> but if we remove it oh no what will happen <laughs> more than likely not this columnist thinks democrats may enjoy short short-term games but will regret their move just as they quickly came to regret its 2013 predecessor First, the very nature of the Senate tends to structurally favor Republicans, well, thanks for admitting the quiet part out loud, given their current political and geographic coalition, in a way the House does not, Republicans tend to dominate the more sparsely populated culturally conservative flyover states, which means they more easily attain a Senate majority without necessarily winning a majority of all popular votes cast over the course of three election cycles combined, generates the Senate's composition. I, I should also note, by the way, that just means it'd also be harder for Democrats to get a filibuster-proof supermajority. But, 
Again, go off, don't actually understand what's going on and what the alternatives are. In this respect, the Senate is similar to the Electoral College, another counter-majoritarian institution. Aren't you a populist or something? Doesn't Josh Hammer, like, fancy himself a bit of a populist? And here he is coming out against majoritarianism and putting in a little sly against grassroots movements. I thought you were standing up to Con Inc. and their oligarch technocratic buddies. Oh yeah, those were just buzzwords you didn't believe in. Hey, who called that out again? Who pointed out that populism is a completely meaningless umbrella term? Was it me? It was me, right? Wow, it's like I'm right about literally everything. <laughs> In the... <laughs> that has recently benefited Republicans more than Democrats to wit the 2016 presidential elections. Furthermore, the slow-changing nature of conservatism and the Republican Party may, redo, may redound against Democrats' interest. The post-World War II modern GOP has been a coalition party sustained by cultural conservatives and economic libertarians, but more often than not, the party earned on classical liberal sides encapsulated by Henry David Thoreau's line from his essay, Civil Disobedience. Again, it should be noted that Josh Hammer has dedicated his entire political career to completely removing that. He once said that his preferred world would be economically liberal and socially conservative, which is the nice way of saying... I'm near certain that's actually the definition of fascism, isn't it? <laughs> In fact, he even once said he'd prefer fascism to various forms of liberalism and libertarianism that he didn't like. Very, very good opinion-haver Josh Hammer we have here. The government is best which governs least. At ever since Donald Trump's presidential election in 2016, the GOP's classical liberal wing has faced a strong countervailing force in the ascendant nationalist slash communitarian wing that is more willing to wield government power in the service of good politic order to secure the Kuman good. Uh, <laughs> I, I should also note that most of those America first nationalists Communitarian candidates have fallen utterly flat on their faces. Just wanted to point that out. I covered the failures of many of them. Hey, how's, um, let me think. How's Chris Kobach? How, where's he these days? Where's Steve King right now? Where's Lauren Witzke right now? Where, where are the communitarian? No, it's the people at first things who want that to happen. That's what it comes down to. Josh Hammer is confusing the U.S. Senate with first things. That's really what's going on at the end of the day. Thus, while the GOP of yesteryear may have been less eager to actually utilize a post-filibuster Senate to advance its agenda, they were never not eager to do that, I should note. The newer GOP would be more inclined to reward its friends and punish its enemies within the confines of the rule of law. Wow, you mean the people who are elected to govern might actually govern? Oh, no. <laughs> I, what's your biggest threat here? If you do this, I'll win. This is, I want you to seriously think about what Josh Hammer is saying here. Because Josh Hammer has been one of the loudest advocates for this post-classical post liberalism GOP that only exists in the heads of him and V-Dare and First Things and the American Mind, the Claremont Institute, well... The American Mind and the Claremont Institute are technically the same thing, but you know what I mean. And human events, I guess. We'll throw human events there and replace that with either the American Mind or the Claremont Institute. Whichever one you want, because I'm nice like that. I'm pro-choice. 
So this is Josh Hammer essentially saying, if you do this thing, I'm gonna win. Oh no. Oh man, Josh. Totally, totally. I completely believe Josh Hammer when he says he is fighting against the thing that if passed, he believes he's essentially describing his ideal political future in this column. You guys do realize that, right? Josh Hammer in this column is describing what his ideal political future for the Republican Party would be, and he's saying, but if the Democrats get rid of the filibuster, which I'm not advocating for, obviously, they're going to do exactly what I've always wanted them to do. So what's your argument here? <laughs> what exactly is your point here? Like, if this were, like, George Will or David French, or the Lincoln Project, publishing this same article, I would seriously consider what it's saying. But Josh Hammer openly hates all three of these people. His arguments essentially, if you do this, which I'm not advocating for, I'm gonna win. Who does that? Who, honest to God, does that? Who honestly says you shouldn't do this thing because it means I'm going to win in the long term? Do you know what I say when my enemies do something that's going to make it easier for me to win in the long term? I say, or I say, yeah, go do that. Make sure you do that. Continue doing that. Never stop doing that. <laughs> Here we have Josh Hammer saying, listen, I'm, I, 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 just, I just don't want to win. What can I say? Oh my god. Dude, either you're a cuck <laughs> or you're dishonest and... Just knowing you like I know you, I've been following you for a couple of years now because you're a fascinating beret of bad ideas. I firmly am kind of convinced it's both. Perhaps most important, dis uh, dispensing with the Senate's filibuster would accelerate the Senate's lamentable institutional decline. The world's greatest deliberating body, nobody calls it that, was, especially prior to the ratification of the 17th Amendment, again, noted populist Josh Hammer essentially wants the Senate to go back before it was in their 17th Amendment, which was, it was the place where the oligarchs met. Senators were picked by governors and by state legislators. They were completely unelected, and again, essentially just well-connected oligarchs. Uh... <laughs> I seriously, that's what they were. It was the place the oligarchs met to decide if the stupid proles were actually governing correctly. But, noted populist, by the way, and again, I thought the issue with the whole lockdown thing was that it was unelected bureaucrats determining how we live. It actually wasn't, side note. It was governors who were elected by the people. But now, now, one house of Congress, half of Congress, well, not half of Congress, but you know what I mean, should just all be unelected bureaucrats and insiders, obviously, obviously. Intended to be a cooling saucer of sorts that filters out and soberizes the house's hotter, intemperate passions. Yeah, it, it already does that by having senators who serve longer terms than representatives. That's what it comes down to. As long as they're still serving longer terms, as long as only a third of them are up for re-election at any given election cycle, then yeah, it's still, no matter what, is filling those desires. The filibuster, which is legally not a constitutional or statutory provision, but instead merely a rule of internal Senate procedure, has nonetheless attained an ethos of quasi-constitutional status that, that's not what words mean, 
Put another way, it is philosophically and intellectually downstream of the counter-majoritarian, and counter-majoritarianism is good, of course, so saith the populist, features that have attained constitutional status. Wait a minute, wait a minute, that doesn't mean anything. Tons of things are counter-majoritarian, but not constitutional. If Joe Biden declared himself an emperor, that would be pretty counter-majoritarian. That doesn't mean it'd be quasi-constitutional. What does that even mean? What does quasi-constitutional even mean? Is something constitutional or isn't it? It's sort of, kind of constitutional. Uh, of course, of course. I need to get the invisible ink reader out, and then also it's kind of smudged. But it's somewhere in there, just trust me on that. Aren't you an originalist or something? In the sense, then, the Senate filibuster directly flows from James Madison's famous decision of factions in the Federalist Number 10, the most famous founding era writing on insidious threats of majoritarian tyranny. Again, Madison wasn't endorsing all forms of anti-majoritarianism. He was defending a very specific thing in that article. The Federalist Papers were very specific responses to criticisms of the Constitution. They weren't general philosophy books. Wow, this article is awful in every single way. Nuking the Senate filibuster, something Republicans notably eschewed during their own Trump era control of the Senate. They nuked the filibuster for Supreme Court appointees, you said that earlier in the article, would undermine the American political order in which counter-majoritarian measures are deeply woven, again, says the noted populist. But it would also be a short-sighted move, even from a cynical, partisan perspective, if dedication to James Madison doesn't prevent Democrats from embarking on this misplaced crusade, perhaps their, long, their own long-term self-interest will. And again, that was said by noted conservative who supports literally everything he warned Republicans would do, Josh Hammer. That's our show, and good night.